Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. A detective is moved to the unsolved cases department after a departmental shakeup. He's tasked with going through Wichita Falls' gruesome unsolved past using modern technology to bring closure and justice to the victims' families. Though, just as the police learn that the man who they had been putting all their time and resources into had actually been innocent, this cold case detective finds a break that makes the final puzzle piece fall into place. The race is on for the police to arrest the true suspect before the serial killer strikes again. People say Ted Bundy didn't show any emotion. I showed emotion. The following episode is not suitable for those under the age of 13. Viewer discretion and parental guidance is advised. Before we delve deep into this case, I'd just like to thank Magellan TV for sponsoring this episode. I'm sure you've heard of Magellan TV before, especially on my channel, and it is not without good reason. Magellan TV is my absolute go-to for all of my documentary needs. With a wide range of documentaries from space, nature to true crime, and with 4K and no extra cost, it is the perfect place to wind down after a long day while still learning something new. Magellan TV actually adds between 15 to 20 hours of brand new content every single week, so if you're worried about running out of true crime content to watch, worry no more. I've just watched Oman, The Treasure of Mudmar. Strategically located between Saudi Arabia and Iran lies the nation of Oman. In 2017, the Sultanate of Oman opened its territory to archaeologists for the very first time. Since then, three sites of significant importance have been excavated, including evidence of the blending between early Bronze Age nomadic people and sailor merchants from Iran and Mesopotamia. Explore the discoveries and learn how the nomadic tribes of the past thrived. Be sure to use the link at the top of the description or the link in the pinned comments and use your one month free trial to go watch Oman, the treasure of Mudmar. And once you've finished it, dive deep into Magellan TV's extensive true crime collection. As I said before, new documentaries like Oman, the treasure of Mudmar are added to Magellan TV weekly. So 
do not sleep on this offer. Grab your one month free trial using the links below. And thank you to Magellan TV for constantly supporting this channel and making content like this video possible. On Thursday, the 20th of December 1984, in Wichita Falls, Texas, Lisa Boone and her friend and co-worker Terry Sims finished up their shift at Bethania Hospital at around 11.15pm. Lisa and Terry had known each other since starting school. The officers at the hospital were next to one another. They both attended Midwestern State University while studying in the medical field while working at the local hospital. On that December Thursday in 1984, Lisa clocked in at the hospital after she had finished school at 2.45pm, joined by Terry Sims for the 3pm to 11pm night shift. The best friends had planned to exchange Christmas gifts at the home of their colleagues after work. Lisa had further arranged for Terry Sims to stay at her house that night so that Terry could assist Lisa in studying for the final exam that was due to take place the following day. During their shift at the hospital, Lisa received an unexpected request from her superiors to work the night shift. And so, after exchanging Christmas gifts, Lisa dropped Terry off at her home at around 12.30am, so half midnight in the early hours of the 21st of December 1984. Lisa's home had been a small two-bedroom, one-bath property, conveniently located just a couple blocks away from her mother's house. Now, it's interesting to note that Lisa had been driving Terry's car that evening and that early morning as her own car, which was sitting on the drive outside her house, had run out of gas. Lisa clocks out of her unexpected shift at the hospital at around 7.15am and immediately drove back to her house where Terry had spent the night. Though, when she knocked on the door, she received no answer. The lights inside the house were all switched off. Lisa had expected Terry to open the front door for her as she had given Terry the only set of keys for the home, a keychain which also happened to have her own car keys attached to it. After not receiving a response from inside the house for quite some time, Lisa decided to go and get the spare keys from her landlord, who lived just two doors down from her. Fortunately, the landlord happily obliged and gave Lisa the extra keys, and so Lisa returned to her house and opened the door. Immediately upon entering the house, Lisa noticed that the living room was a mess and in disarray. She called out to Terry, shouting her name over and over again, but she received no response. Fear flooded through her body as she ran back to her landlord's house to tell him that something had been very wrong. Her landlord tried to calm Lisa down before they both walked back up the street to the property. The landlord calmly and cautiously walked through the front door carefully treading to avoid disturbing the mess within. Tragically, the landlord discovered the body of 20-year-old Terry Sims lying naked on the bathroom floor. Terry's hands had been bound tightly behind her back, with blood everywhere. Both the living room and front bedroom had been a complete mess. Lisa swiftly contacted the authorities. A completed autopsy revealed that Terry Sims had succumbed to multiple stab wounds. The autopsy further determined that some of Terry's wounds were defensive, quote, in nature. The sheer number indicated that Terry had struggled with her attacker for several minutes. Some of the stab wounds sustained appeared to have been what the pathologist called tease wounds, which the pathologist speculated to have been inflicted by the attacker to get Terry's attention rather than in an attempt to kill her. 
Swabs were taken from Terry's mouth and private areas to determine whether there had been semen present. And upon later testing, semen was detected within these samples. The investigators began to develop a suspect in Terry's murder, a former boyfriend of hers. Police were quick to request oral swabs from the former boyfriend to be compared with the oral swabs taken from Terry's remains. And when these results came back, they showed that the former boyfriend's DNA profile had not been consistent with that of the DNA found on Terry's remains. He was subsequently excluded as a suspect. And following this outcome, the investigators were unable to find any further leads. And so, after exhausting all avenues of investigation available to them, the case went cold. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Tony Jean Gibbs was born on the 14th of February 1961 in Clayton, Union County, New Mexico, the United States. She was the youngest of three children, born to Walden Lewis Gibbs Sr. and Dawn Gibbs. Tony had two older brothers, Jeff Gibbs and Walden Gibbs Jr. There isn't much information publicly available about Tony's upbringing, though we know that after she graduated from high school, she studied in the medical field at the Midwestern State University in Wichita Falls. Once Tony had obtained her degree, she went on to work at Wichita General Hospital as a registered nurse. Tony had moved into an apartment on Barnett Road in Wichita Falls, with her two older brothers actually moving into properties two doors down from one another, just a stone's throw away. On Saturday the 19th of January 1985, Tony clocked off from work at about 7.30am that morning. She had another shift scheduled for that evening at 10.45pm, so Tony welcomed the handful of hours she had to catch up on sleep and get some chores done. Though... Tony didn't show up for work that evening. Tony's older brother Jeff was notified the following morning on Sunday the 20th of January 1985 that his sister had failed to show up for her shift and that the hospital had been unable to reach her. As soon as Tony's older brother Jeff had found out that his younger sister was missing, he phoned up his older brother Walden Gibbs Jr., who, as we previously stated, lived just two doors down from them. Jeff told Walden that Tony hadn't shown up for work, which they both agreed was extremely unusual for Tony as she was a very dependable person. And so the two brothers decided to go over to Tony's apartment to see if she had been there. Though Tony was nowhere to be seen. And bizarrely, her car, a 1984 Z28 white Camaro, hadn't been parked outside her house either. The two brothers went immediately to the police station to report Tony as missing. It's important to note that her sudden disappearance had caused even further concern due to the fact that Tony had been receiving obscene telephone calls. On several different occasions in the months leading up to her disappearance, Tony would receive very vulgar and threatening phone calls from an unknown person. Tony never went into detail, specific detail, about what was said on these calls, but she did express her fear about them to her brothers. 
Two days after Tony had been reported missing by her older brothers, her car was found on the 2000 block of Van Boren Street in Wichita Falls. The discovery of her car only led to more questions being raised about the whereabouts of Tony. Had she parked her car at that location? Why? Where had she gone after leaving the vehicle? Had she left the vehicle by herself? Had she been forced? The car itself was promptly processed and photographed by the authorities. An analysis revealed the presence of a small smear of red substance on the inside of the driver's door handle and also on the outside of the door handle on the driver's side. For the next couple of weeks, it appeared that the case had been growing cold. The fear and helplessness of Tony's disappearance griefed her family and friends as they desperately tried to find her. At about 3.20pm on Friday the 15th of February 1985, a phone call was made to Ranger Girth, who had been in Archer County, from dispatch, advising him that a, quote, female had been found in a passenger in Archer County at the intersection of US 280 and West Jensic Road. You see, an electrician for the Texas Electric Company had been checking a meter on the south side of the passenger in Archer County, and as he had been driving down West Jenst Road, he spotted what appeared to be a body through an opening into the field. The electrician called in and reported his findings at about 2.30pm that afternoon. Ranger Girth, who had served his entire life in public service in Wichita Falls, proceeded to the location described to ascertain more information about the discovery. He arrived alongside the chief deputy of Archer County at the scene at about 3.40pm. Two responding officers had already been at the scene when they arrived, and they showed Ranger Girth and the chief deputy the location of a nude female body. The deceased woman had been found laying on her back, with her arms stretched above her head. She had been wearing a wristwatch that had stopped at 10.14 in either the morning or evening. The woman had sustained severe wounds to the chest and post-mortem wounds inflicted by animals. The area was immediately cordoned off as an active crime scene, and Ranger Girth was meticulous in keeping the crime scene secure, designating two officers to make a crime scene drawing, taking the names of every officer that walked into the scene, and forming evidence search teams and an evidence recovery team. Photographs and identification of any potential physical evidence in the area were logged and taken. The crime scene contained an abandoned bus that was of particular note to the investigators. It had been located in the pasture and had its engine and front wheels removed. The bus was open-ended to the south end, meaning you can see into the bus from the rear. Parts of a nurse's uniform and a shoe were located underneath the bus, with the clothing appearing to have stains. Also inside the bus, the investigators uncovered a white bra in the pipes of the vehicle. The bus itself had numerous stains that appeared to be blood splatters and drops within the entrance. The location of these spots within the bus was described as being erratic directions. There had also been a very small cast-off of what appeared to be blood on the left side of the bus and on the right side of the bus. This was all indicative of a lot of violence taking place. Within a nearby mesquite bush, investigators located two big pens, one red with its lid missing, the other blue with its lid still on, and a crumpled $1 bill. A black jacket was found under the floorboards of the bus, and it appeared to have been thrown there. It had been the deepest item inside the bus. 
A partial tennis shoe track was discovered at the south end of the bus near the open end, which was subsequently photographed and cast for further examination. Finally, a fibre was located on a tube of fibreglass also to the south of the bus. The investigators at the time were unsure of its significance, but catalogued it due to it being in an odd location. Inside the fibreglass tube had been a piece of cloth that was also recovered. The nurse's uniform that had been found underneath the bus had been soaked in what appeared to be blood and had a name tag attached. The name tag read, Tony Gibbs, registered nurse, nursing service, Wichita General Hospital. Further, the name T. Gibbs RN was embroidered on the uniform, along with a Midwestern State's graduation pin. These items were used alongside family identification to identify the remains to have been that of missing Tony Gibbs. A forensic pathologist by the name of Dr. Stilwell determines that Tony Gibbs had died as a result of multiple stab wounds to the chest and abdomen, and noted what he considered to have been, quote, defense-type wounds. There had also been a number of contusions on the front side of her body. The pathologist stated that Tony had died from loss of blood, a process that had taken between five to ten minutes. Further, samples taken from Tony's private areas revealed the presence of spermatozoa. The authorities turned their attention to a local 24-year-old bartender by the name of Danny Lochlin. Danny had worked at the Stardust Club in Wichita Falls, and despite his job title, he didn't take any orders or mix drinks. He simply mopped up the bar. Though on occasion, he did perform as an adult entertainer in the club. Suspicions had fallen upon Danny due to his strange behaviour on the day that Tony's body had been found. He had been seen slowly passing the field on his motorcycle multiple times, making numerous passes, watching with what appeared to be a heightened interest in what had been going on. Further, suspicion fell upon him when he had been seen walking his pet wolf in the field itself before the discovery of Tony's remains. What kind of a person has a pet wolf? I didn't even know you could have a wolf as a pet. That's why it must be a big dog, right? It can't be an actual wolf, surely. Imagine you're just going about your time, your day. You're just taking your little chihuahua out for a walk and all of a sudden there's a dude with a wolf. I've run in the other direction. And due to all this suspicious behaviour, the investigators believed they had their man. The police alleged that if Danny had been in that field, he must have been there to murder Tony, which is a bit of a reach in my opinion. And it appeared that witness statements supported the police's theory. Allegedly, Danny had been seen in the vicinity of the murder and appeared to express what was described as an extraordinary curiosity concerning the homicide. And furthermore, he appeared to know information that hadn't been released to the press, details that could only have been known by the murderer. As a result of Danny becoming a suspect, the authorities abandoned all other avenues of investigation to focus solely on building the case against Danny. He was arrested and charged with the murder, and he awaited six months in jail for the capital murder trial against him. The trial itself was riddled with cross-examination and hearsay, and after the final arguments were heard, the jury began their deliberations. On all accounts, it had been a very difficult case with opposing opinions. Shouting could be heard from the jury room, alongside muffled sobs from the jury. The jury ultimately deliberated for 14 hours over a two-day period before returning to the courtroom, though the jury's decision had returned deadlocked, 11 to 1 for acquittal. And as a result, the judge declared a mistrial and Danny walked free.
We're going to come back to this part, but in 1991, with advancements in forensic science technologies, a small sample of DNA taken from Tony's body was tested against Danny's DNA profile, and it was determined that Danny's DNA profile was not consistent with the DNA found in the sample, and he was subsequently excluded as a suspect because of that, but that doesn't happen for a while in this investigation, so just keep in mind that throughout this, and even after the mistrial was declared, the investigators solely believed that Danny was the murderer. The investigators had remained dead set on Danny being responsible for Tony's murder, and would actually disregard any evidence that didn't align with their theory. And the case of Tony slowly grew cold. Deborah Sue Huey was born on Sunday the 5th of April 1959 in Tarrant County, Texas, to parents Travis and Betty Huey. After Deborah graduated from Brewer High School, she got married to her first husband on the 24th of April 1976 and brought her first child, a daughter, into the world. Though the marriage to her first husband wasn't destined to last, with the couple separating not long after finalising their divorce on the 26th of July 1978. On the 17th of October 1979, Deborah married a man called Richard Ken Taylor, known as Ken Taylor to friends and family, becoming Deborah Sue Taylor. The newlyweds welcomed Deborah's second daughter into the family shortly thereafter, moving to a lovely family home in Fort Worth. Sunday the 24th of March 1985, Fort Worth, Texas. Deborah Taylor and her husband of five years, Ken, had hosted their friends at their family home in a get-together. They ate dinner together, drank alcohol, and generally just had a good time with one another. By the time the clock struck midnight, Deborah's husband, Ken, had grown tired. The two children had already fallen asleep, and Ken wanted to go to bed. Though, Deborah wanted to go out to the club. Everyone at the get-together declined Deborah's invitation to go out to the club, but Deborah was dead set on going out that night. She excused herself to bed, and just after midnight, Deborah slipped out of the house without saying a word to anyone. Deborah walked to a bar on East Lancaster, never to be seen alive by her family again. As Deborah partied away at the bar, her husband Ken was saying goodnight to the guests that had attended the family's get-together. Though, when he went to the marital bedroom, he found the bed to be empty. He noticed Deborah's purse laying on the dresser and her sweater hung in the closet, and thought to himself that his wife couldn't have gone far without a sweater or her purse. And so, Ken got into bed and fell asleep while waiting for Deborah to come home. Ken awoke the following morning to find himself still alone in the bed. Deborah had failed to return home. Concerned, Ken spent the day checking in with family and friends to see if anybody had heard from Deborah, and Ken learnt that nobody had heard from her since midnight the night before, and fear began to set in. That Monday afternoon, Ken contacted the authorities and reported his wife as missing. The investigators immediately suspected Ken of having some form of involvement in Deborah's disappearance. Four days later, on Friday the 29th of March 1985, just off of Randall Mill Road, west of Loop 820 in Fort Worth, a construction worker who had been employed by a company to build apartments crossed the road into a wooded area to relieve himself. Approximately 20 feet east of a new road that was being constructed for an apartment housing unit, the worker discovered the naked body of a woman. The authorities were immediately contacted. Investigators cordoned off the scene immediately. 
The body had been found in a clump of trees about 175 feet south of Randall Mill Road. About 84 feet northeast of the body, clothing was located, piled together. These items of clothing and the woman's remains were transported to the Tarrant County Medical Examiner's Office for an autopsy to take place. The medical examiner described the woman's body in the autopsy as, quote, At the time of examination, the body is nude. There are two rings in place on the left hand, one a small band-like ring with decoration, and the other with setting containing a larger faceted clear stone, and two smaller faceted clear stones are in place on the band of the ring. There is a small gold-coloured necklace with a heart-shaped pendant also. The medical examiner concluded that the woman's cause of death had been asphyxiation due to strangulation. Deborah's husband was summoned to the medical office to conduct an identification of the remains to see if the Jane Doe had potentially been Deborah, but Ken was unable to make a positive identification through visual examination of the body, though he was able to identify the remains through the jewellery that she had been wearing at the time, her wedding rings and a necklace that he had given her that Christmas. Investigators were quick to suspect Deborah's husband, Ken, as being responsible for Deborah's murder. They conducted several searches of the family home and questioned him numerous times. This ultimately caused Deborah's family, her dad in particular, to cast the blame onto Ken. Her father allegedly even went as far as to threaten Ken, and it took a long time before they were able to speak again. Though the investigators were unable to find anything that pointed to Ken being Deborah's murderer. All they knew was that after Deborah had left the family home, shortly after midnight, she had made her way to the Peppermill Club located on East Lancaster, about four miles away from where Deborah's body would later be found. No other suspects were investigated in connection to the case. With no further leads to go on, the case grew cold. Ellen Blau was born on the 18th of March 1964 in Saddle River, New Jersey, the United States, to parents Murray and Rima. She was the sole daughter of her parents, only having one other sibling, a brother, in the small family unit. In her middle to late teens, the family moved from Saddle River in New Jersey to Guilford, Connecticut. Ellen was described as being extremely intelligent. She had attended Choate School, which was an extremely prestigious school in Connecticut that boasted notable alumni such as John F. Kennedy, Jamie Lee Curtis, and Robert Fitzgerald. Now, it's actually a bit unclear as to why Ellen ended up in Wichita Falls, Texas. Some sources stated that she had actually enrolled in a gynecology course at Midwestern State University, having moved to Wichita Falls to start studying in the September of 1985. The court transcripts stated that Ellen might have actually gone to Texas for a much more romantic reason. According to one of Ellen's closest friends, Ellen had actually, quote, become involved with a young man in Connecticut who was from Texas, and she fell in love with him and she followed him here, not really to her parents' wishes. Whatever the case, by the age of 21, Ellen had been living in Wichita Falls in Texas and had found work at a restaurant by the name of Bennigan's. Ellen's studies are never really mentioned again in any of the sources, so I'm not sure whether she actually was going to university or not, so I just wanted to include that just in case, but just so you know, that may or may not be true and we couldn't verify it. It was at this restaurant where she worked that Ellen became extremely close friends with a woman seven years older than her called Jane Bell. The pair were instant best friends. 
The pair worked together at the restaurant for a while, though as Ellen didn't own a car initially, she would ride her bicycle everywhere. She would ride it to work, home, in the rain, it didn't matter. According to Jane Bell, Ellen even named her bike Trigger, and they used to laugh about it as she rode Trigger everywhere. It wasn't long before Ellen had saved enough money to purchase a car, a Volkswagen Rabbit convertible. On the morning of Friday the 20th of September 1985, Jane, Ellen's best friend, received a phone call from Ellen's place of work, as Ellen had failed to show up to her shift that day. You see, by that point, Ellen had moved in with Jane and her husband, and had been actively looking for an apartment of her own. In fact, she'd been about to start renting a place. At the time, Ellen had been working at Subs and Subs, which was a Subway sandwich shop, out at the Shepherd Air Force Base, a military airbase. The sandwich shop was quite far away from the house that Ellen shared with Jane and her husband, and so she used her new car to commute. On that morning, Ellen's place of work had called Jane as Ellen had supposed to have been opening up the shop at about 9am, but she hadn't shown up and was checking to see if she had been at home, perhaps with an illness or something to that effect. But Jane hadn't seen Ellen since the day before. Ellen had worked the closing shift the night before and had been at the shop up until about midnight and was supposed to have come straight home. And when she hadn't come home after that night shift, Jane had become worried, but just assumed that Ellen would show up again either early that morning or after her morning shift. So when Jane received the call from Ellen's work on Friday the 20th of September 1985 concerning Ellen's whereabouts, Jane began to panic. You see, Jane and Ellen had a sort of agreement in place that Ellen would call Jane if she wasn't going to make it home for any reason, or if she was going to stay somewhere else. But she hadn't contacted Jane at all. According to court transcripts, after receiving this call from work, Jane stated, quote, There was no one else really for me to call to check on her. So the person who called me, I had asked her to call her boss just to make sure that she was supposed to open, and there was not a mistake and in fact that maybe she wasn't supposed to be there, which I was hoping that was the case. And they called me back again and said no, she was definitely scheduled to open. And Ellen was very responsible, she would have been there within, she may have been late, but she would have been there. So then I was really very, very worried. We hung up and not shorts, just shortly after that I got a phone call from one of the delivery, someone who delivers bread to her store, who came to the store to deliver the bread, had seen her car parked at another store down the street. Jane rushed to where Ellen's car had been found on Burke Burnett Road. The car had been parked in front of the store on the far right corner of Burke Burnett Road and Pocket Road. And inside the car, Jane saw Ellen's keys, Ellen's pocketbook, and a spot of blood on the driver's seat. Other people had begun to gather by that point, and the authorities were immediately contacted. Searches were conducted across the city for Ellen, but they yielded no results. Jane described Ellen as, quote, Ellen was the kindest person I've ever met in my entire life. She's the most non-judgmental person that I've ever known, and I used to want to be more like her. Always. Just the goodness in her, and it's been extremely difficult. It wouldn't be until 21 days later, on the 10th of October 1985, that a break in the case was made. A road worker for the Wichita County road crew had been cutting grass on a dirt road called East Road, just north of Shepherd Air Force Base, when, from the road, he saw a body. Due to the body being not in the city limits, but in the rural county, Wichita County Sheriff's Office assumed jurisdiction of the investigation. Detectives arrived on scene to find a badly decomposed body about three-tenths of a mile west from 240 Burke Burnett Road. 
The body had been found beneath a mesquite tree right at the bottom of a wall of a stock pond and had been completely nude, except for a sock and some pieces of jewellery, a necklace and a watch. About 30 yards from the body, investigators found clothing on the far side of the wall of the stock pond. They uncovered a pair of blue jean pants, which had one leg inside out, some tennis shoes, another sock, a bra, and a yellow and white shirt. The shirt itself had been inside out and was an exact match to the shirt that Ellen had been wearing when she went missing. Interestingly, a broken beer bottle found at the scene matched pieces of glass that had been found inside Ellen's car. An autopsy was conducted on the body, which revealed tragic findings and an identification. The conclusion reads, quote, It is our opinion that the mummified, partially skeletonized remains recovered from a location near Highway 240 and East Road are those of Ellen Blau, on the basis of comparison of pre-mortem dental records from Dr. Gettenberg with post-mortem examination and radiographs. It is further our opinion that Ellen Blau, a 21-year-old white female, died as a result of undetermined homicidal violence. No unequivocal injuries could be identified on the intact surfaces of the body and no injuries to the underlying bony structures. Post-mortem toxicology reveals no drugs or alcohol in body tissues. The circumstances and physical evidence from the death scene are consistent with a violent death inflicted by another person. Manner of death, homicide. Despite all of this, the investigators were stumped. They conducted vigorous investigation, but due to the condition of Ellen's body and the absence of clues, no arrests or suspects were made or found. And the case, just as with the others in this episode, grew cold. Ellen's best friend Jane would say, quote, The day she died, I had spoken with her. She was about to rent an apartment and move out of her house and have her own apartment. And I remember telling her that day that if she ever died on me, I would kill her. And it was, that was the worst thing that I've been through at that point in my life. She, I have a little girl that I named after her, so she was in my life. Tina Elizabeth Kimbrew was born on the 27th of October 1964 in Houston, Texas, to parents Elaine and Robert Kimbrew. Tina grew up an only child, mostly in Vernon, but had been very close her entire life to her cousin, Shelley Kelly, who had been 13 years older than her. Not all too much is known about Tina's upbringing, but what we do know is that by 1986, at the age of 21, Tina had been working as a bartender waitress at a local hotel in Wichita Falls and had an apartment nearby. On the 5th of May 1986, Tina's mother Elaine was undergoing back surgery at a hospital in Wichita Falls. On the following day, on Tuesday the 6th of May 1986, Tina's cousin, Shelley Kelly, Shelley's little girl, and their grandmother all drove out to Wichita Falls to visit Elaine, Tina's mother, in the hospital as she recovered from this back surgery. Shelley, her young daughter and grandmother, arrived at the hospital at around 2 or 3 in the afternoon. They had expected to meet Tina there, but she hadn't shown up. Before they had set off to the hospital, Tina's grandmother had actually called her up to see if she was going to meet them at the hospital, but Tina didn't pick up the phone. They believed that Tina hadn't been home and so was at the hospital already. After visiting with Elaine, the group of three left the hospital and Tina's grandmother decided that she wanted to go by Tina's apartment on the way back home as Elaine had told her that Tina was supposed to have visited her that morning, but she hadn't shown up. 
And so Shelley, Shelley's young daughter and her grandmother all drove over to the Park Regency Apartments off of Seymour Road. They knocked on the door to the apartments but received no response. Shelley noticed that Tina's car had still been there and figured that Tina had already gone to the hospital and maybe had gotten a ride with someone and maybe her car had broken down. They kept knocking on the door but to no avail. Shelley's daughter had been eating candy and had gotten it all over her face and so her grandma said for them to go in and clean Shelley's daughter up before they headed off back home. You see, Shelley had been given a key to the apartment by Tina when Tina had moved into it and they knew that Tina wouldn't mind them using her restroom quickly to clean up. And so Shelley unlocked the door to the apartment and the three of them went in. Quote, Well, her dog met us at the door was kind of jumping around. And I just glanced a little bit to the right. When I walked in the door, I noticed there was a lamp knocked over, a table knocked over. It just looked like things had been ransacked in her apartment. I remember telling my grandmother that I just thought it was her dog. He was just a little dog, but I thought, look what this dog did to her apartment. I didn't have a clue. I just said that. And then we walked. Her restroom was directly away from me and straight in front of her front door. So we started walking towards the restroom. And then we just turned back towards the living room area in front of the couch and on the floor. And Tina was laying on the floor on her back. I thought she had to be unconscious just because I had never seen anything like that. I thought maybe she fell and was unconscious or something until I got over to her. I went straight over to her and looked over her and then I knew something was definitely wrong. Something was wrong and I got scared. I grabbed my little girl and I backed up against the wall in the kitchen. When asked whether Shelley's little girl, her young daughter, had seen Tina's body, Shelley replied, quote, yes, because she was just right behind me. My grandmother was behind me and we both kind of had a hold of her hands when we were walking over there. And like I said, I picked her up and got her away real quick. That was my first reaction was to move my daughter because I didn't know what was could have happened to her. It scared me. When I saw her face, it scared me. Tina had been lying face up, dressed in a nightgown that had been pulled above her waist. After Shelley and her grandmother had collected themselves, they decided to grab a bedsheet to cover Tina's body until the police could arrive, as Tina's private area had been fully exposed. Officers quickly arrived on the scene and began checking for signs of life, though tragically, there hadn't been any. The sofa near where Tina lay had been in disarray. The cushions had been dragged off onto the floor. She had numerous bruises on her face, patterned bruising on her neck, and some bruising on her legs. The end table that had been at the end of the couch had been knocked over, and two of the legs had been broken off. There was an ashtray and two cups, a beer glass, and a Sonic brand cup at the scene. Further, there had been a pair of ladies' underwear near Tina's outstretched left arm, and there was a blue washcloth further into the room near the opposite wall and one shoe. Tina's body was subsequently taken to the Southwestern Institute of Forensic Sciences in Dallas, Texas to undergo an autopsy. The autopsy concluded that, quote, It is our opinion that Tina Elizabeth Kimbrew, a 21-year-old white female, died as a result of smothering. Some object was placed over her face, particularly the nose and mouth, and held in place, preventing her from breathing. The marks on her arms are consistent with being held or grabbed forcibly. Post-mortem toxicology reveals no drugs or alcohol in body fluids. Manner of death, homicide. Investigations into the murder of Tina were immediately launched and a witness was located who had seen someone enter Tina's apartments. This witness gave a description of a tall, lanky, thin white male who had been wearing light-coloured pants, a light-coloured shirt and a ball cap. 
The witness stated that this man had knocked on Tina's door before entering the apartment. These details given by the witness were aired on television in the media, and this actually led to a break in the case. A detective from Galveston Police Department contacted the investigators and told them that a white male subject had apparently travelled to Galveston and placed himself in a Galveston motel on the beachfront and had called the Galveston police, threatening to commit suicide. The Galveston police had responded to the call and made contact with the man, a man by the name of Farian Wardrip. And this man gave a confession to the authorities that he had been the one to murder Tina Kimbrew. Farian told the police that he had struck and beat Tina about the face before strangling her. Further, Farian claimed to have been an acquaintance of Tina's. They had apparently met when Farian had been working as a bouncer and doorman at the Stardust Club in Wichita Falls. Farian told the authorities that he figured out that he had been responsible for Tina's murder because of the description that the police had publicised about the man who had entered her apartment. And after that, he travelled to Galveston to take his own life. On the 2nd of December 1986, Farian Wardrip signed a waiver of jury trial and pled guilty to murder in the first degree. He was subsequently sentenced to 35 years in prison. However, Farian was actually paroled after just 11 years of his sentence had been served in December of 1997. But this isn't where the case ends. John Little had worked as a Wichita County investigator for about seven years before he'd been assigned to the unsolved cases in 1996 due to a departmental shakeup. If you cast your mind back to when we discussed the case of Tony Gibbs earlier on in this video, you remember that the authorities in that case had been set in stone that Danny Lachlan had been the murderer due to his suspicious actions. And after the mistrial against Danny, the police were still insisting that he had been responsible. But John Little had not been all too convinced. He didn't want to let the focus on Danny distract from other potential leads, asking himself, what if the other potential suspects had the opportunity to commit the murder? What if Danny was some kind of red herring? John Little would later say when discussing the case, quote, I felt that this could all be the work of one person. The multiple suspect scenarios had failed, so you just have to go with what's left. If the puzzle piece doesn't fit, you can't jam it in. One thing of note stood out to John Little, and that was the fact that after 1986, the murders had seemingly stopped, at least murders that could be considered to be linked. If this had been the work of a serial killer, then why had they stopped? Where had they gone? And so John Little went to work. He dived deep into every shred of evidence. He interviewed friends and family of the victims. He painstakingly and meticulously examined every aspect and angle of the unsolved cases he had been assigned to. Though even with the extensive knowledge John Little had developed, he was still missing that one puzzle piece that would bring everything together. In 1993, Danny Lachlan died in a head-on collision car crash, still fighting for his innocence. It wouldn't be until three years later in 1996, which was when John Little had started working the unsolved cases, that with advancements in DNA testing, a DNA test was ordered, and as we previously mentioned, actually cleared Danny Lachlan of murdering Tony Gibbs. This DNA testing further reveals that semen found in the Terry Sims case actually matched semen found in the Tony Gibbs case. They finally had, for the first time, a link between two of the unsolved cases. Something that said that the two murders had been committed by a singular killer. One man. John Little went through the case files again, trying to see if there had been any more links between the two cases, 
and that was when he discovered a name that kept popping up in both of the two case files. Further, when John Little mapped the area of Wichita Falls with the address of convicted killers, kidnappers, and other felons, his suspicions were confirmed. Farian Wardrip was connected to these unsolved cases. John Little learnt that during the trial against Farian for the murder of Tina Kimbrew, he actually admitted to knowing Ellen Blau. This admission was never followed up or investigated. He then found out that Ellen Blau had lived just one block away from Terry Sims, and to top it all off, Farian had been employed as an orderly in the exact same hospital in which Tony Gibbs had worked. Could this potential link between the murders of Terry Sims, Tony Gibbs, Ellen Blau, and Tina Kimbrew be the break they needed to prosecute the man responsible for murdering these women? It's important to note that no link at this point was made to the case of Deborah Taylor. All of this brought John Little to a small church in Olney, some 90 miles south of Wichita Falls. You see, Farian Wardrip had found redemption at this small church after he was released from prison in 1997 for the murder of Tina Kimbrew. He sang hymns at the church and taught Sunday school to the church's children. According to some sources, at an emotional prayer meeting, Farian had told the congregation of the church that he had just finished serving a manslaughter sentence for driving while intoxicated, which had resulted in him killing his girlfriend. A story that was far from the truth, but a story that he was assured by the congregation that his truth would set him free. And with time, he became one of the most respected members of the church. Quote, he was there every Sunday and dressed nicely, said Margaret Carter, who attended the church. He was getting the second chance that a lot of us get through God's grace. He seemed to be making the best of it. There wasn't any gossip. We accepted him. Farian had even found work as a handyman, with members of the local church and local community oftentimes inviting him over to join their families for Sunday dinner. Everything seemed to be on the up for Farian. That was until John Little came calling. You see, for John Little to concretely prove that Farian had a connection with the other unsolved cases, he needed DNA evidence. And so he hatched a plan. John Little travelled to Olney, where Farian had relocated, and from behind the cover of bushes, he watched Farian for several hours. He followed him to the screen door company where he worked, and just before Farian walked inside to start his shift, he threw away a drinking cup into the trash. John Little seized the opportunity, grabbing the discarded cup and rushing back to Wichita Falls. And it was from fleshy mouth tissues found on the cup that forensic scientists were able to determine that Farian Wardrip's DNA matched that of the sample taken from Tony Gibbs's remains. And on the 13th of February 1999, Farian Wardrip was arrested. In an unexpected twist, while Farian had been in custody, he gave a full confession. Farian was sentenced in 1999 of the murder of Terry Sims to death. He additionally received three life sentences for the murders of Tony Gibbs, Deborah Taylor, and Ellen Blau. Farian Wardrip remains on death row to this day, despite a failed appeal. We can only hope that the friends and family of Terry, Tony, Deborah, Ellen, and Tina have been able to find justice with this sentencing and are able to move forward with the memory of their loved ones in their hearts. And that's everything I have for you in today's case. If you have a case that you want me to cover, head on over to requestacase.com and send in your submissions there. You can also see what other people have submitted and place your vote on what I should cover. So make sure you don't miss out on giving me your input and head on over to requestacase.com. Make sure to subscribe to this channel and hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time I post a brand new true crime video just like this one. 
You don't want to miss out on my live true crime deep dives that we do here on my YouTube channel almost every Saturday at 10pm UK time. Thank you once again to Magellan TV for sponsoring this episode. Grab your one month free trial using the links down below. Also, if you want to hang out with a small community of people who like true crime content, join our Discord server for free. Again, you can find a link to that in the description. Over the past month, I've been having a bit of a time. Um, I sustained a head injury. If you have seen on my uh, community tab, you have seen that um, I did put a post up. I sustained a head injury and uh, subsequently had a bad concussion. Um, so I had to take time off because um, my brain just was not working. Um, those of you who have ex who've had loved ones uh, who've had concussions or have personally had concussions, you'll know how difficult it is to do anything. Um, and I felt like I couldn't do the cases that I was covering justice um, if I didn't have 100% of my brain going at it, if that makes sense. So that's where I've been for the past month. I also took a week off uh, where I went on holiday um, for the first time in like three years. So that was really nice. Um, and now we're back. We're back and you can expect videos and live streams. Um, going forward, I will be posting my schedules every um, Sunday on the community tab on my Twitter and Instagram and on the Discord server. So if you follow those, um, make sure you go and give them a follow. Um, and yeah, Thank you so much for sticking around and supporting. I really, really do appreciate it. A special thank you to my Patreon members and channel members. Bellamethius, Nino Lover, MG, Bailey's Clubhouse, Katie from the Other Side, Michelle Johnston, Sherry L. Bandy, Lady Janice Mimi Fisher, Kirsty, JG, Patricia Luna, Casey Monks, Samantha O'Hara, and Cicely Thomas. If you want to support this channel, get access to monthly case polls, audio versions of my videos, scripts, and more, hit that join button down below or go to patreon.com forward slash Joshua Miles and become a patron or channel member today. And with that being said, I'll see you in the next case.